Well, we are in for a special treat this morning. Uh, I've, I've been announcing it the last couple of weeks and uh, got an email from uh, uh, Creation Ministries International about a month and a half ago, two months ago, and, and uh, uh, got familiar with the ministry because up until this point I wasn't familiar with the ministry and uh, come to find out it's been around for 40 years and so uh, probably because it was, you know, before I was born. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I wish I could say that. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, the first service was awesome. And so uh, this morning, through Creation uh, Ministries, we have uh, Keaton Helly out to speak with us. So let me tell you, read a little bit about Keaton. Uh, he was converted to Christ as a young boy. Uh, for years, he had unanswered questions about why evolution and the evidence he learned in science class was not consistent with the Bible stories he heard in church. It wasn't until his senior year in high school at th- that he first heard a creation speaker answer many of his basic questions, explaining how the geological evidence, dinosaurs, and biological complexity were completely consist- consistent with Bible's historical accounts. After receiving a degree in visual communication from Judson University, Keaton also earned a master's degree in Christian apologetics from Biola University. Keaton now serves as the graphic artist for the U.S. office of CMI in Atlanta. Keaton's passion to share this life-changing message with others is clearly evident as he directly answers the same challenges with which he has wrestled. And, And let me tell you, again, it was a blessing first service, and you guys are going to be blessed this service. And so... Uh, without further ado, let me introduce to you Keaton Haley. Welcome, Keaton. All right. Well, good morning. Thanks for braving the snow this morning. Um, I, for one, am actually excited about the snow because I grew up in Chicago, so not so far from here, but I moved to Atlanta five years ago. I, I thought to get away from the snow, but you know what? I've got more pine needles and leaves that come down in my yard that uh, getting away from shoveling didn't solve my problems. <laughs> but now I'm not used to the snow, and so seeing it uh, again is, is uh, a treat. But uh, my name is Keaton Halley, as was mentioned, uh, and I moved to Atlanta in order to work for this ministry five years ago, Creation Ministries, which was near and dear uh, to my own heart. And so I'm, I'm excited about the message that I get to share with you in this hour. Now, if you're not familiar with what we do or who we are, we've been around for 40 years. We are in seven different countries. We are international. And our purpose is to equip Christians with a kind of a confident Christianity, helping them to understand what they believe and why they believe it, and then also be able to pass it on, to share that with others, to know deep down, especially how, how the book of Genesis is foundational to our faith. And that's really what we're going to focus on here this morning. And so, uh, for, for me, this, this creation and evolution controversy was important as I was growing up, because I... I was raised in a church home. My mom led me to Christ when I was just seven years old. And I, I had a you know, godly parents, a Bible-believing church, no, no complaints really about my childhood. But I also had a foot in the non-Christian world because I went to public school. Uh, I had non-Christian friends, and I watched television. You know? And those things led me to wrestle quite a bit with my faith. And I, I remember asking a number of questions myself as a youth. I wondered, can I really trust the Bible? How do I know that there is a God in the first place, for example? Or uh, what about those bones that scientists dig up out of the ground and say connect humans back to ape-like ancestors? If we believe Genesis, what do we do with those bones? Or dinosaurs, that was one of my questions as well. If God created in six days, when did the dinosaurs actually live? How do we understand these things? And here was a big one for me as well. If the creator is a God of love, Why did he make a world like this one that's so full of death and pain and suffering and tragedy? Now, those are only four of the questions that I had and that our ministry deals with on a regular basis. And thankfully, I found answers as I grew older. In high school, I heard a creation speaker for myself. So even growing up in the church, I didn't really get answers to these questions until I was in high school. Uh, but, But that really shored up my faith and gave me a tremendous passion for this subject. Once I learned that the Bible is credible, we can trust it from the beginning. Uh, But I want you folks to think about this for yourselves. Could you answer these questions this morning if you had to take a pop quiz (laughs) right here, right now? Does that make your heart race a little bit faster? And if you know the answers, have you passed them on to the next generation? You know, are we training our our children, our grandchildren to understand why they believe what, what they do? 
about the Bible? Or are we just expecting them to have kind of a blind faith? The Bible talks a lot about faith, but it never asks us to, ha- to ha- believe blindly, to have a blind faith, right? We, we need to be prepared with answers. In fact, the Bible tells us that in 1 Peter 3.15. It says that we should, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, or some translations say to give an answer. For what? Well, for the hope that is in us. So, so this is saying, if somebody asks you, why do you believe the Bible? Well, you already know the answer. You're happy when somebody asks you that question, right? Because you've been trained in advance. I think of this verse like one of the mottos of the Marine Corps. that says, the more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. And so it's important to get some of that training in advance, right? In a safe environment before we're challenged by the world. And then if we do that training, then we know why we believe what we do. We've learned the answers. And so our ministry wants to come alongside you and and equip you with some of those answers. We do that through a variety of tools, speaking engagements like this one. But long after I'm gone, you folks can keep getting a steady diet of creation. If you want to visit our website, for example, uh, that's a good tool. We have over 10,000 articles online, new ones being featured every day, and lots of video content as well. And so the address is kind of a long, complicated one, You might want to get a pen and paper out to write this down. It's creation.com. Not so hard to remember, is it? So I just encourage you to visit that uh, sometime in the near near future. Anytime you have a question yourselves, how do I make sense of, you know, claims about the Big Bang? Or or why did God create poisonous spiders? Or um, how did Noah fit all the animals on board the ark? Or what about the fossil ape men or the dinosaurs, etc.? All these questions addressed in our materials. Also, you could sign up for our e-newsletter. That's totally free. A good way to, to get the answers delivered into your home on a regular basis to remind you to connect with us. And so if you're interested, we're going to have in just a moment here some volunteers come forward, pass around these sign-up sheets, and you want to just put down your name, your email, and your zip code if you wouldn't mind doing that. All right? So go ahead. My volunteers can pass those around at this time. And, and as we continue, then let me focus on why should your average Christian who, who might not be, many, maybe many of you in this room are not passionate about technical science, right? <laughs> how, many, how many actually you know, blew something up as a child and are a huge science fanatic? <laughs> and how many have not very much interested in this subject at all? Probably, probably the majority of you. But guess what? Every believer needs to have answers, as First Peter 3.15 says. And, and Jesus also said something that... Uh, that I think shows us why this is important in the, in the culture we live in, in this day and age, why we need to have these answers, especially as it pertains to Genesis and science. And that's because in, in John chapter 3, remember the context here is Jesus speaking with Nicodemus about his need to be born again. Right? John 3.16 is a verse all of you know, or most of you hopefully. But, but in John 3.12, Jesus said, If I have told you earthly things, and you don't believe those, how are you going to believe me? when I tell you of heavenly things. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, think about it this way. The Bible talks about heavenly things. It, it, it tells us spiritual truths, right? Like God's standard of morality. Uh, it tells us about how Jesus was the Son of God. It tells us how to go to heaven, ultimately. The Bible's obviously a spiritual book. But do you realize the Bible also talks about subjects that are more in our everyday experience, ordinary kind of mundane things, if you will. I'm thinking of subjects like history and science. Does the Bible talk about history? Absolutely. What, what about science? Does the Bible talk about science at all? Well, its main purpose is not to give us all the details of astrophysics or molecular biology, but where the Bible talks about the natural world, like creation, it's telling us about facts that pertain to science, right? For example, think about the Bible's view on biology. In the very first chapter of Genesis, it says that God made different kinds of plants and animals. Over ten times in the creation account, it uses that phrase that God created them after or according to their kinds. That's a statement about biology, living things. Does the Bible ever address geology, rocks and fossils? Yeah. How about Noah's flood a few chapters later in in Genesis? When the waters covered the mountaintops, Think about if this entire area here was covered with water, what would that do, not just to the real estate values, but how how would it affect the landscape 
of the earth. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rearrange rocks and soil and sediment and redeposit them elsewhere. It's going to have a major impact, a worldwide flood. What about the Bible's view of astronomy? Well, in Genesis 1, it says God made the sun, moon, and stars on a particular day of creation week, right? That was day number four. And when did God make the earth? Earth was here from the very first day. Yeah, dry land on day, day three, I think I heard somebody say. But uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There from day one. At that time, it was covered with water. Dry land rose up later. So either way, the, the earth was here before the stars, right? According to Genesis. That's a, that's a statement about astronomy. And let's do one more. Anthropology is the study of mankind. So how many people did God make in the Garden of Eden to begin with? Just two. And they were a married couple, right? How, how did God make the first man? From the dust of the ground. How did God make the first woman, Eve? From Adam's rib. And so the Bible talks about anthropology. So why, why is this significant? Well, the world is also teaching young people, indoctrinating our society into a certain view of biology, geology, astronomy, anthropology as well, aren't they? What does Hollywood teach? What does our education system teach, by and large, about biology today? They say there weren't separate origins, supernaturally to living things, but that all plants, animals, people, they're all connected, they're all related in one tree of life back to a single ancestor millions of years ago. The more that young people are taught the world's view of biology, the more they think, well, hang on, I guess the Bible doesn't get it right in biology. And what does the world say about geology? They say there wasn't a global flood because all the rocks and fossils are explained by slow, gradual processes over millions of years. The more that young people are taught the world's view of geology, the more they go, I guess the Bible's giving me fairy tales. What about the world's astronomy? They say the stars are billions of years old, much older than planet Earth, whereas the Bible had it the other way around. And the world's anthropology says that humans evolved from ape-like ancestors. Nobody came from the dust of the ground or from a rib in their view. You see this? And so th this is a major challenge for the church in this day and age. How are we answering that challenge? And it actually affects, it impacts the faith of many real flesh and blood human beings. Think about a man like Charles Templeton. Templeton was a well-known evangelist in the 1950s, as, as prominent in his day as Billy Graham. In fact, they were friends. And Templeton spoke to massive crowds of people night after night, preaching the gospel and seeing many come to Christ. And yet Templeton, largely due to these questions he had about science, how to reconcile that with scripture, he, he had a number of doubts. And eventually those doubts became so severe, he thought, I better get some help and I'll go back to seminary and get some theological training. But he went to Princeton where they had already compromised with evolution and they taught him, you can believe evolution and the Bible. Why can't you just put them two together? Well, I think Templeton realized the problem there. He, he became more consistent than his professors and he realized if evolution is scientific fact, the Bible's history in Genesis is wrong. I can't believe it's earthly things. Therefore, why believe it's heavenly things? And sadly, that led Templeton to walk away from his faith. He became an atheist later in life. And he wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith, in which he said, I believe that there is no God in the biblical sense, but instead, life is the result of just timeless evolutionary forces over millions of years. And I think Templeton's story should be a lesson for the church today. How are we doing at equipping, training our young people? Are we, are we giving them the answers that they require or setting them up like, you know, to become the Templetons of the future? Uh, the answers actually aren't that hard to find. They're, they're readily available. That's, you know, our ministry is one of many that, that produces uh, sort of information that we, we like to say that we're, that we're arming God's army, right? We're equipping you folks with, with the ammunition you need to fight the battle for truth. And when I read Templeton's book myself many years ago, it struck me that a lot of his objections were actually quite superficial. If you just knew some of the basics, you would have the answers that Templeton was lacking. And it also stood out to me that most of Templeton's objections to Christianity focused on one book of the Bible most of all. Any guesses as to what book that was? That's right, the book of Genesis. And I think the reason he focused there is because Genesis is like a foundation. If you think about it, that history 
in the opening chapters about the creation and the fall and the flood and the Tower of Babel, that sets the stage for all of our later Christian doctrines and our theology. In fact, to illustrate just how foundational Genesis is to our faith, I'd like to quote from an up-and-coming young theologian, but she's only seven years old, so uh, I'll let her mother tell you her story. A Christian mom wrote this letter. She said, My seven-year-old daughter, Jessica, is a deep thinker when it comes to theological questions. Recently, we discussed why bad things happen sometimes, rereading the story of Adam and Eve and how sin came into the world. Now, later that week, Jessica was ill and had to stay home from school. Feeling miserable, she told me, If only Adam and Eve hadn't eaten the fruit, I wouldn't be sick. But before I could answer, she said, Of course, if they didn't eat it, we'd be sitting here naked. I like the way children think. And for a seven-year-old, Jessica has a pretty robust Christian worldview, doesn't she? She knows that what happened in Eden didn't stay in Eden. And, And why is that? Because Adam was a real man in history. And his actions impact our lives right down to the present. You might say Jessica thought of Genesis like a foundation. For many things, for the Bible's teaching on clothing, for example. I don't, I don't know if you folks have ever thought about a theology of clothing before. <laughs> but it's there in Scripture, right? How God clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skins after they first rebelled against their creator. Right? Sin corrupted their innocence. And so there's a moral reason why we wear clothes, not just to stay warm when it's as chilly as it is today outside. Uh, how about the Bible's teaching on marriage? Is that, go back to Genesis, Yeah, do you remember when Jesus was challenged on the subject of divorce? Uh, The Pharisees came to trap Jesus with a trick question, right? So they said, Jesus, can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Because they knew what it said in the Old Testament law. And Jesus pointed them there. He said, well, what does the law tell you? The Pharisees said, well, Moses permitted divorce. And Jesus said, that's true, but God only allowed it because of the hardness of your hearts, right? God permitted it for a time. But then Jesus said, but have you not read? And he was about to quote from Genesis chapters 1 and 2, quoting the history in particular. Right? He said, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning of creation made them male and female? In other words, he pointed back to Adam and Eve to say the whole uh, intention God has behind marriage, the, the, the purpose of it is rooted in its origin, in its history. That God instituted marriage in the beginning, and that's why it's to be one man and one woman for a lifetime. Right? And so Jesus said Adam and Eve were historically literally one flesh, Eve coming from Adam's side. Therefore, you don't separate what God has joined together. And then, why are we born with the sin nature? And do you realize the death rate is 100%? Does that bother anyone besides me? Well, we all are under the death penalty, so to speak, because our forefather was Adam. Right? He sinned against his creator and passed on that sin nature as well to all of us. And so we experience death like him. And, and then think about how, therefore, the gospel is tied to Genesis. Why do we need a savior in the first place? It, it's to remedy the sin in the garden, isn't it? Adam and Eve sinned. We inherit that sin nature. All of us deserve death. The wages of sin is death. Therefore, we need a free gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, do you think Genesis is foundational to our faith? Is it, is it important for Christianity? Absolutely. And so, as our culture moves away from the book of Genesis, as they teach that evolution is fact, millions of years is fact, you can no longer believe the accounts of Adam and Eve, the garden, and so on. Is it any wonder that as Genesis, the, the, the credibility of it in the world's eyes is lost, that we see the spiritual truths, the moral teachings, the gospel itself is harder and harder to get people in our society to accept. And so I submit that if we want to be effective in reaching a lost world for Christ, if we want to be effective in winning these culture war battles over things like abortion and and same-sex marriage and so forth, then we need to get back to the foundations because that's been lost. That's why our culture is sliding so fast away from the Bible's heavenly things. And yet, I understand how this this controversy of creation and evolution can even be kind of a controversy within the church. 
Right? Many Christians have accepted evolution or at least millions of years. And so sometimes those folks will say to, to people like me at Creation Ministries International, they'll say, but hold on, aren't you just reading Genesis in kind of a narrow, particular way? Isn't that just your interpretation of Genesis? Because I believe that Genesis teaches God created everything in six literal days in the recent past. And it was a global flood in the days of Noah. That's clear from the language in Genesis itself. But it's also reinforced by later teachings in the New Testament. And so I like to respond when somebody says, that's just your interpretation of Genesis. I say, hold on, I'm just, I'm just reading Genesis the same way that Jesus did. Let me show you how Jesus took the book of Genesis. Uh, these are the words of Jesus in the passage I was just alluding to. He, de- he defends marriage by taking the Pharisees back to the beginning. But now notice what's implicit in Jesus' statement here. Because Jesus is the creator, right? Uh, he, w- he was there at the beginning. He made all things. He knows how it happened. But according to Jesus, when did God make the first human beings? After millions and billions of years? No, Jesus says Adam and Eve, the first people, were around from the beginning of creation. Now, that makes perfect sense if we picture Bible history according to this timeline that's only a few thousand years old. Now, I don't think from Scripture you can set an exact date on how long ago God made all things, but but Jesus' view must have been that it was relatively recent because Adam and Eve were made on the sixth day. On this time scale, that's the beginning of creation. But if we contrast Jesus' words with the other view of history that you've all learned about as well, according to this story, the world is not thousands of years old, it is billions of years old. And a billion is a lot more than a thousand. How many knew that already? All right, not trying to be patronizing, but my my point is just that these are different scales, so don't get confused by the the difference there. Uh, I'm glad most of you know that. But um, according to the evolutionary timeline, when did God make the first, uh, or, or when did the first human beings appear on the scene? at the tail end of history. Even if it's a million or so more years ago, uh, on this time scale, that's not the beginning of creation. Do you see how this contradicts the words of Jesus? But there are actually many contradictions between millions of years and the Bible. And some of them are very theologically significant. For example, the whole reason people in our society believe that the world is millions of years old, generally, is from looking at the rock record, right? Aren't they looking at like the crust of the earth, what you see in the walls of the Grand Canyon there, and saying these layers form slowly and gradually one year after year after year? Well, if so, if it took millions of years to deposit those layers in the canyon, and much more time to erode them away as well, well then, we better consider what we find inside the rock layers. You know what we find inside many of those rock layers? Billions and billions of dead things. Right? That's what fossils are, by and large. And so if millions of years were the correct view of history, that would mean death has been with us for ages and ages and ages, long before human beings, which you don't find until the uppermost layers. Now, what does the Bible say about the origin of death? Well, those early chapters of Genesis talk about the Garden of Eden, right? And thankfully, right here, we have a rare photograph of Eden, uh, somebody snapped that on day six of Creation Week, as I'm, uh, I've been told. Uh, and so now you see here um, Adam and Eve in a world before the fall, before they ever sinned. And so that's why they're hiding behind a bush there, because it's a pre-fall paradise, but you can't show a pre-fall picture to a post-fall audience. Um, but the world at this stage would have had plenty of animals and lush vegetation and so forth. And on the sixth day, God looked on everything that he had made and said, Behold, it is very... Good, Genesis 1.31. And what does God mean when he calls the world very good? Before humans have sinned, before he's cursed the ground, it's a paradise free from death and suffering, free from extinction events and diseases and so forth. And yet, if God used millions of years to create, what does that mean? That Adam and Eve were in fact standing on top of a huge pile of bones, that massive fossil graveyard, graveyard representing eons and eons of death and bloodshed pain, suffering, animals eating one another, thorns and thistles we find deep down in those fossil layers, and clearly evidence of diseases as well. Did you know that in dinosaur bones, we can identify some of them had cancer, arthritis, broke their bones, had bite marks from other dinosaurs? Is that the world that God initially made and said, this is very good, already full of cancer? Does God think cancer is very good? 
Not at all. It's, it's an intruder, an enemy, a part of a fallen world. The Bible says that, the, that death is the last enemy to be destroyed. It's not the way God set things up in the beginning. And some Christians have the idea that Adam's sin only affected other human beings. But think about this. In Romans 8, it says that the whole creation is groaning. It's travailing in pain. Uh, that's not the way God made it because this same chapter talks about how the creation longs to be redeemed. That the creation was affected by the fall, by the curse that God put on the ground. Now it was going to bring forth thorns and thistles, and Adam would have to work harder than he ever did before. And so to summarize, the, the Bible teaching is that man came first and brought death into the world. But if evolution or millions of years are true, then death came first and led up to man's existence. Do you see how these stories are actually polar opposites? We can't logically and consistently reconcile them. And so it's also important to understand that, that this is not just theological hair-splitting, right? We're not talking, debating only about the meaning of, of the Hebrew word day in Genesis. The, the concept of millions of years actually goes against the whole overarching story of Scripture, that God made a good world in the beginning, and then it was destroyed, it was, it was damaged due to sin. And that's why we need a Savior. That's why we need a new heavens and a new earth. It's, it's about the overarching story of all of history. And so it's important for us to defend Genesis as real history. And this has implications for the gospel as well. I mean, look at the way the Apostle Paul connected Genesis to the gospel message. Here he compares Adam with Jesus Christ. He says, For as by a man came death, speaking there of Adam, right? By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Speaking of Christ. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So again, do you see how Genesis is essential to the truth of Christianity? That the gospel is the, the message of the good news, but I like the way somebody once said it, that you can't understand the good news of the New Testament until you first understand the bad news in Genesis. So the, the bad news is critical for our faith. And yet, where does that leave us then in terms of the scientific evidence? If you agree with me that, that Genesis is very clear, the Bible as a whole is clear, that it's not compatible with evolution in millions of years, but does that mean we need to hide our heads in the sand because all the scientific evidence is overwhelmingly against our faith? Not at all. You know, that's the way the media likes to portray this controversy, as though creationist Christians are fighting a war on science or that it's God versus science. Not, no, no, that's not my message here this morning. I think when rightly understood, science helps to support the truth of God's Word. That's why we employ a number of PhD scientists on our staff. Uh, but, but there's an important distinction to be made at this point. You see, when most people hear the word science, they're thinking of, and rightly so, what's often called operational science. This is just one kind of science. Now, operational science means the kind that deals with the way the world works on a regular basis, the way it operates. Okay? So it's talking about things that happen right now in the present, observations we can make, experiments that we can repeat over and over, and check our results against reality. We can test it, right? And so operational science has been very powerful. It, it depends on the laws of nature, and it's led to discoveries in technology and modern medicine. It's put men on the moon and, and those kinds of things. And so science in our culture has a tremendous amount of authority, right? When a scientist says something, it's like, wow, well, that must be true. However, when we're talking about the creation and evolution controversy, we're not talking about the same sort of science, if it's science at all. Because both creation and evolution tell stories about the past that just happened one time, according to their views. You can't repeat the whole history of the universe in a laboratory. You can't observe it directly in front of you. What you have instead are fragmentary clues that have uh, you know, that exist in the present which, with which we can try to reconstruct the past. So when, when we try to reconstruct the past using some scientific, you know, measurements and evaluations and things, that's called historical science. So it's not that historical science is wrong or bad, but it's that it's not as powerful or authoritative as operational science. And when we're talking about the creation and evolution controversy, we're talking about the latter, historical science. How did things come to be. Here, our biases, our starting assumptions play a much greater role in governing what conclusions 
we come to. So let's apply that distinction, okay? Uh, if we talk about some specifics here, like fossils. If I ask you, how did we come to have billions of fossils all around the world? How long ago were these fossils made? How, how long does it take to form a fossil anyway? These are questions that mainly pertain to historical science, right? We have to tell stories about the past to explain fossils in the present. Now, the evolutionists have been very influential in getting people to think of fossils in terms of slow, gradual processes, and that fossils are ancient things, right? Even our language gives away how we've been evolutionized, because if you call another person a fossil, what are you saying about them? See how we do that? We, we associate fossils with oldness. We've been indoctrinated by these ideas, when in reality, think about how fossils really would form. Did they form by animal, an animal dying, sinking to the ocean floor, slowly getting covered up year after year? Is that what happened when your goldfish die? They sink to the bottom? Often they float to the top, right? And more importantly, they get picked apart by scavengers and decay from bacteria. In ordinary circumstances, fossils do not form. What you have to do instead is separate it from the environment quickly, prevent the environmental forces from tearing it apart. So in other words, if you wanted to form a goldfish fossil, what you could do is sneak up behind him when he's not looking with a cement truck and then unload a pile of concrete right on top of his head. And if you bury him deeply enough, scavengers won't, burrowing organisms won't be able to get to him. And with the right chemistry in the water, his bones can turn to stone in a hurry. It doesn't require millions of years at all. And if you don't believe me, let me show you some real life examples of fossils that happened rapidly. Um, this creature here is called an ichthyosaur. Now, as far as we know, they are extinct today. It's a reptilian marine creature, an ichthyosaur. Now, we find them in the fossil record. Like, here's one that when the evolutionists published this photo, they gave it a caption that said, time freeze frame, meaning they knew this animal was buried very, very suddenly. How, how do they know that? Well, right here where the arrow is pointing, that's a baby ichthyosaur almost fully out of the birth canal. In other words, in the process of a mother ichthyosaur giving birth to live young, when both animals got suddenly overwhelmed, buried by sediment in some catastrophe, and couldn't even finish the process. And it doesn't take millions of years to give birth. Praise the Lord for that, right, ladies? <laughs> but it's not just the burial that happens quickly. What about turning to stone? Well, here's a fossil hat from New Zealand. And this was once a soft felt hat, but it got buried by volcanic ash. And just 20 years after that is when it was dug out. And guess what? In only 20 years, it had already evolved from a soft hat into a hard hat. Uh, so I guess evolution does happen in some cases. Now, my favorite fossil are the petrified teddy bears that are made in England. You can buy these online. We actually have a couple of them in our um, office in Atlanta. And the way they're made, they just hang a soft object, like a teddy bear on a string, nearby a mineral-rich well water. And then the water splashes onto the objects, and they soak it up. And over time, the water evaporates away, and only the hard minerals are left behind. And so millions of years to cover a bear in flowstone? No, not at all. Three to five months is all it takes. Now, of course, many evolutionists understand that fossils, the ones we've observed, we've always observed them forming rapidly. Nobody's been around for millions of years to forming slowly, to, to see fossils forming slowly and gradually. And, and yet they'll say at this point, hold on, Mr. Creationist, you're forgetting how fossils powerfully testify to the truth of evolution. Because we have found, the evolutionists say, so many of these links that you creationists claim are still missing. You folks have heard of the missing links before, right? Well, evolutionists claim they found quite a number of examples of these that are no longer missing, intermediate creatures. Like this one here, they named Pachycetus when it was discovered back in 1983 and made the cover of science. Now, Pachycetus means the whale from Pakistan, where it was found. But does Pachycetus have something to do with whales? Well, evolutionists believe that whales, because they're mammals, not fish, they actually descended from land-dwelling, four-legged land creatures, mammals that live on the land, right? And so evolutionists say, in the fossil record, we should expect to see some of these creatures that are partway on the way to becoming whales, descended from land creatures. Now, now Pachycetus looks quite a bit like, actually, he would fit the bill, wouldn't he? 
I mean, he's got, he's got four limbs, but they're rather paddle-like, look like they're on their way to becoming flippers. His body is very streamlined. He's got a lot of blubber there, apparently, to keep him uh, warm, diving to the ocean depths and so forth. Um, but are you convinced that evolution has a lot of credibility after all? They've found some of these links? Well, of course, what we're seeing here is a drawing of Pachycetus, right? Now, this is the way that students are often confused by, they just assume their textbooks are presenting things fairly, uh, and yet you always want to make a distinction between the story you're being told or the artwork you're being shown on the one hand and the evidence on the other. Now, what was the evidence they had, the fossil material they found to draw Pachycetus in that way? At the time they made that drawing, they hadn't found any bones below the skull, and not even the whole skull, just the shaded parts that you see there. And so this is what often happens, that it's not that evolutionists are deceitful or stupid, but they're interpreting the evidence in light of their worldview, their, their glasses, their lenses for, for seeing the evidence. They already believe in evolution. The whole claim about Pachycetus being a missing link was based on a tiny bone in its inner ear that supposedly resembles whale ear bones. But in fact, when you look at it and compare the two, they, they do not, even though evolutionists still make that claim today. Now, they didn't even actually reconstruct the skull accurately here because here you see in the non-shaded parts, they show that the, the nasal opening set a ways back on the skull, not right at the tip of the snout. It turns out after they found more bones, they realized, no, Pachycetus's nose is right at the front of his snout. Uh, not only that, his eye socket was further up, unlike whales. And they found the animal had hooves and was a speedy runner and spent all its time on the land. And here's the way they draw Pachycetus today. Now, that's quite a different picture, isn't it? Right? So the evidence is often like this, fragmentary and open to a, a wide variety of interpretations until they recover more. And this doesn't make the cover of science when they quietly shuffle it off the scene, right? And so Pachycetus has nothing to do with the origin of whales. There's not a hint of blubber or a blowhole on this animal anywhere. And by the way, he's only about three or four feet long, you know? <laughs> not related to whales at all. Just an extinct rodent that God created. But we hear the same claims about human origins, right? That the missing links have been found here as well. Well, here's one example from uh, 1993, Boxgrove Man found in England. Again, what's the distinction between the artwork and the evidence? Well, look at the drawings in the newspapers. They show a, a pretty much human-shaped body with maybe a little bit more hair than most of us have. But look at the head. The, the head is, is very um, brutish, subhuman, or even ape-like. And yet, why do they draw Pachycetus, the, uh, or um, Boxgrove Man, that way? What was the evidence they found? They found just a fragment of shin bone and a couple of teeth and also some stone tools. But the body remains just shin bone and teeth. The teeth were far enough away that they weren't even certain they belonged to the same individual. But they also admitted that the teeth and the shin bone were 100% human. So then why do they draw a Boxgrove Man that way if they agree the bones, the material, looks human? Well, it's because of the date they assigned to Boxgrove Man. They said he was 300 to 400,000 years ago, and back then humans hadn't yet finished you know, evolving to our present state. You know, so they had to sort of downgrade, apify these bones to make them fit with the theory, not with the evidence itself. Now, it's not always true that they're only finding fragmentary remains. With, in some cases, like Neanderthal man, we found a whole, quite a range of skeletons, very complete skeletons. There's no question that Neanderthals really existed, but what were they? Ape-like ancestors, cavemen? Uh, they, they may have lived in caves, but they weren't brutish the way you see them drawn back in 1909. This fellow is, you know, stooped over, full of fur. He looks like King Kong, doesn't he? <laughs> but is that really how Neanderthals looked? Not at all. Do you realize that we've, we've found lots of evidence that Neanderthals were intelligent human beings just like you and me? Their skeletons are very much like yours and mine with some minor differences, minor variation. Uh, but some of the evidence for their culture we found is that they, they um, constructed shelters unlike what animals do. They had controlled use of fire, so they cooked the meat that they hunted uh, using these spears that they created with wooden shafts and a stone tip on the end. And the tip was attached with the high-tech superglue that they created from the fire as well. They were very sophisticated, intelligent people. And over the years, the evolutionists have really rehabilitated the image of Neanderthal man. Now they claim they're just our evolutionary cousins, 
humans, but they still say they're sort of subhuman. But, lo but look at the, the renditions in the museums and magazines. Uh, and, and you may note that the, how well they, they trimmed their hair and cleaned the dirt off their faces is not part of the fossil evidence. Right? That's somebody's artistic license. And if you gave these folks a shave and a shower, would, would they even stand out in a crowd? I, I don't think so. And one kind of humorous illustration of how the Neanderthals are clearly human beings, as the Bible would indicate, descendants of Adam and Eve, uh, when the BBC released their new Neanderthal man sculpture, one newspaper headline said, BBC's Neanderthal man looks an awful lot like Chuck Norris. And there you can compare the two <laughs> to see the uncanny resemblance. Now, I mean no disrespect to Mr. Norris. He's actually a wonderful Christian man. But uh, rather, it's, it's to the credit of the Neanderthals that they look so much like you and me. Because that's exactly what they were. Just uh, a variant of human being descended from Adam and Eve. And by the way, everybody in this room, most likely, because all people around the world, excluding certain Africans, have uh, Neanderthal DNA in them meaning some of our ancestors were the Neanderthals. Now, we've talked about fossils for some time. We've seen that fossils don't require long periods of time. Uh, they form rapidly. We've seen that the claims about missing links, like Neanderthals, Boxgrove Man, Pachycetus, are often based on remains that are interpreted to fit with evolution. And we've seen that as Christians... We don't want to say that these fossils represent millions of years. That would put death before Adam's sin. So how, as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, are we to understand the fossil record as a whole? What, what could explain this? Is there anything in the Bible's history after Adam and Eve? Maybe some type of worldwide catastrophic event that would bury billions of dead things all over the earth? How about a great global watery catastrophe like Noah's flood? And once you understand that most of the fossil record points to Noah's flood, then do you see how we have powerful scientific testimony that proves the Bible, or at least strongly points to it, that strongly supports our faith. There's no reason to deny Christianity based on science. It is our ally. Now, what about the rock layers then? If the fossils form rapidly, the rock layers they're entombed in must be a result of catastrophes, rapid burial as well, right? And do we see scientific evidence of that? Yes, one example would be Mount St. Helens, that volcano that erupted on May 18, 1980. And uh, this is actually a video of the you know, footage of the eruption there. All, a lot of that ash and pumice that went up into the sky came down uh, soon after and solidified into this solid rock layer. See the person standing there for scale? That's a lot of rock from one tiny eruption. And yet, that's not the whole story because less than a month after this, the same volcano erupted a second time, laid down all these alternating light and dark banded deposits. Not one year after year after year, but the whole stack laid down in three hours on June 12, 1980. And then, uh, less than a couple years later, some snow and ice had built up at the summit of the volcano, and another eruption melted all that, caused this uh, catastrophic mud flow, uh, did tremendous amount of havoc to the surrounding landscape, and laid down this layer that became a mud rock layer. So if one tiny volcano can do that much geological work in a short amount of time, what would the worldwide flood do in the year that Noah was aboard the ark? Uh, when, when the Bible says that the fountains of the great deep burst open at the onset of the flood, and, and so volcanic processes would have been occurring all over the world at the same time, uh, the flood is responsible for much of the fossil record. So that, that's just really the tip of the iceberg that I've been able to share with you this morning, but I hope what you've seen gives you confidence of this, that what we see in God's world agrees with what we read in God's word. Do you guys get excited about seeing how real science helps to support our faith? And can you see yourself sharing this with other people? Because I, I want you to keep this in mind. Your average public school in the United States is not going to uh, cover the case for creation in the classroom, right? <laughs> or if, if they present it at all, they're not going to present it very fairly, most likely. And are, are students going to hear about this from watching the Discovery Channel or movies from Hollywood or reading their newspaper? Uh, how are people going to learn about this unless we take it on our shoulders, right? And so I just want to challenge you as I, as I wrap up here 
to get equipped, like we talked about at the beginning, right? We can, we can learn those answers. And those scary statistics that we often hear about, about kids from Christian homes growing up and then walking away from the faith in their college years, we don't have to let that happen. And I'm not saying that there's some magic bullet that's going to solve every problem and keep everyone in the faith, but I, I think, like with Templeton's story, we need to do our part to train people in advance to, to make sure that they don't have any intellectual excuse from walking away from the faith. Raise that intellectual price tag on, on rejecting Christianity. And so one great way to do that is to sign up for our uh, creation magazine. This comes out four times a year. It's full color and no paid advertising. And the kind of material we have inside is not just a recipe for butternut squash. It's uh, life-changing truths. We have uh, had articles in the past about these two baby girls here who are um, twin sisters. Now, how is that possible if they have such different skin shades, right? But they have the same mom and dad, and we can explain it using simple genetics, and that shows how all people groups go back to Adam and Eve in the recent past. You don't need millions of years or evolution to explain the different racial distinctives. Uh, the magazine is great for evangelism as well. This woman said she's 99 years old, but she preaches to people with our magazine. And so if she can do it at that age, any of us can, right? Even more encouraging is she sent us that testimony by email. Not Twitter. Maybe we'll get a tweet someday from a 99-year-old. But anyway, just uh, if you're interested, we're going to pass around these forms again uh, to give you an opportunity to sign up in advance so that long lines don't have to form at the book tables at the end. If you want to subscribe today, though, just tear off one of these sheets for yourself, fill it out in detail, and then bring it to the book tables when we're done. And as an incentive, we'll give you some free gifts for signing up. Um, First of all, put your email address down, because in addition to the print version mailed to your home every three months, if you get uh, the free, no extra charge, the email version, uh, or the digital version, we email you a link, and you can forward it to five different devices. We're happy to have you spread this information around. That's the goal, right, to to, um, help people to be equipped and learn about this. Uh, Then the free gifts we're going to give you, we'll we'll give you your first issue today of the magazine. We'll also give you two DVDs, a Darwin documentary where we evaluate his ideas from a historical perspective, and also uh, a DVD where we interviewed university students on college campuses and asked them about their views on creation and evolution and whether they were still going to church uh, as a consequence and so forth. So my guys, my volunteers can go ahead and pass around those magazine forms. Now, let me come back to one point I was speaking of earlier. You know, at the the very beginning, we talked about four questions. How do you know there is a God? Why would he make a world full of death and suffering? What about fossil ape men? And the last one we haven't really touched on yet, dinosaurs. Do dinosaurs fit with this idea that the world is relatively young, not millions of years old? Well, we're seeing scientific evidence now that supports that, like soft, stretchy tissue from inside dinosaur bones. How come if dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago, this material has not disintegrated beyond recovery? Rather, we're finding blood vessels and blood cells from these creatures, and even DNA fragments now from a Tyrannosaurus rex. Uh, It seems clear to me that this indicates dinosaurs lived in the recent past, not millions of years ago at all. And so we talk a lot about dinosaurs in our ministry. The the, um, lead researcher on this, an evolutionist, Mary Schweitzer, She said, it was just like looking at a slice of modern bone, but I couldn't believe it. Why couldn't she believe the results of her own laboratory experiments? Well, because of her prior commitment to evolution. You see how evolution is actually a hindrance to science, not a support. If you believe the Bible, then you're going to understand how this evidence lines up with Scripture. Well, we cover dinosaurs not only in our magazine, but in our books as well. This has a great chapter, the Creation Answers book. It's got a chapter on dinosaurs as well as it answers 60 of the most asked questions. Uh, It also covers how do you know that there is a God? How did Noah fit the animals on board the ark? How did, um, you know, what about distant starlight and carbon dating? Uh, What about um, the way the continent, you know, was there a supercontinent at one time, Pangaea, that kind of thing? Or where did Cain get his wife since he wasn't able and so on? And then... Uh, Refuting evolution is a great one for high school students and above. This is going to refute the propaganda they'll be learning about in their classroom settings. Uh, We've got other resources like DVDs. If you're not a big reader, this is one of my favorites. Uh, Exposes the fatal flaws of evolution in a whole variety of fields, and it features 15 Bible-believing PhD scientists. 
We have resources for children as well. These hardcover books available as a set. Uh, a booklet on gay marriage and other short booklet-length treatments of timely topics. You know, we talked about how marriage is connected to the history in Genesis, didn't we? So we uh, set the record straight on some of the myths about this subject. Uh, this one is a commentary on Genesis 1 to 11 for somebody that wants to go in-depth into the science and theology. 800 pages there for a Bible teacher or something. Our website, again, don't forget, that's got a lot of freebies online. Good, good, you know, 10,000 articles as well as video content. And I just want to uh, kind of bring it back to where we began. Because we already read this verse, right? First Peter 3.15 says, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, but do that with gentleness and respect. And so my charge to you folks this morning is to take up that challenge. Learn those answers. You don't have to become an encyclopedia of creation information, but, but just like Templeton's objections were easy to overcome if you understood some of the basics, that's what I'm asking you to do. Just, just arm yourselves with the answers so that you can pass them on to your own children and grandchildren, friends and neighbors, and so forth. All right, so I hope you'll do that and get equipped to defend Genesis from the first verse. Thank you so much. As Keaton mentioned, there's a, all, there's a whole resource table right there in the back in front of the sound booth. And so I encourage you to head back there and take a look at all the resources that he has. And uh, just a great thing. So just what a, what a blessing it was this morning to have him out. Uh, let's have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning, Lord. We thank you for your word and how powerful it is, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that even from the beginning, Lord, it all points to your son, Jesus Christ. And it's all about what he did for us upon the cross, dying for us, rising again from the dead to give us life. Lord, we, we love you. We praise you for this time this morning, Lord. And we give you all the glory. We pray your blessing upon Keaton as he continues to minister, Lord, uh, uh, through this ministry. We pray your blessing upon this ministry, uh, Lord. And, and we do pray for the hearers, Lord, that they would uh, just... Uh, learn to put into practice these things that we learned today, Lord. And so we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, let's all stand and we'll do one last song together. <laughs>